Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer, and casting director with two features under my belt. I'm also a former film critic and a current distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. And I am Art Bissell, the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on set since college, and I've served on seven feature films and countless shorts, commercials, and corporate videos. I've produced or directed about a dozen shorts and features combined into one. And I'm also just finishing up post on my first feature film, The Alternate. This week, we have writer, producer, and director Camille Brown on the show to talk about her latest film, A Christmas Winter Song, starring Ashanti. Very exciting. We're going to jump right into the interview, and then afterwards, please, please stick around for another Get Shorty, featuring longtime listener and previous editor of the show, Cameron Caves. We also have another edition of You've Got Mail, where we read viewer comments and emails. But without further ado, or jibber-jabber, or fast-talking from Liz, here's Camille. We're here today with Camille Brown, who recently made a Christmas winter song. So we're going to start off the top with some questions about it. Camille, how many days did you shoot? 14 days. And what was the rough budget of the project? Ooh, I, I think it was just under a million. Whoa. That's amazing. I'm always excited when the answer is actually the answer's over like 100. I don't really know what the vinyl number was. Over 100. So it's somewhere in between a hundred and a million dollars, would you say? Yeah, okay. yes, the budget was in between there. Perfect. How long did you spend working on the film from being brought on to its release? Probably from February to the release was December. We finished everything by late August. That is fast. How big was your crew? I believe it was like 40 to 50 people. And compared to all the other projects you've worked on, how difficult was this one? It wasn't as bad as my first feature. I think it wasn't that difficult, actually. Yes, 14 days is challenging, but I, I don't think it, it, it was difficult. Is it because, you know, you were hired on and you didn't write it? Was it because you had money? Like, let's unpack that. I think because I went through doing my own independent feature I figured everything out that I did wrong on that first feature, or I figured all the, you know, the holes and stuff like that. I, I figured it out. I'm like, okay, if this didn't work. I can figure, this is how I can change it. So it was a learning lesson, the first feature. So any challenge I had in the first feature, if I saw that challenge with this feature, I'm like, oh, I know how to fix, fix that. I know how to correct. I need, I know how to course correct. I know how to pivot. I know how to, you know, make my day. I know how to figure it out. So I was able to use those tools from the first feature, certainly for this feature. So what are some of the things that you learned on the first feature that you are able to apply to the second one? I think trying to make sure you make your day. I always, on my first feature, I always made my day too, but I was able to figure out better ways to do my setups and to be quicker with the setups and to try to get more coverage with those setups. So I learned that. Like for your master, just trying to be as consolidated as possible in the master? Yes. Okay. Yes, master. And then like, how many shots can I get off from this angle and quickly? And then I love my zoom lens. I'm like, okay, let's just like, let's just punch in quickly. And let's just, I don't even cut sometimes. I'm like, let's just go qu closer quickly, quickly. Like, you know, yeah. So I was able to. Was it the same cinematographer as your first feature on the second feature? 
No, a different cinematographer. Oh, interesting. And, and what was the decision behind switching up with your cinematographer? I think the company had certain mandates. So you, you had restrictions of who, who was approved by them. Okay. Okay. And let's also just give a little bit of context, right? So you made what, what, like what I think of as the most exalted, exciting thing in the world. You made a seasonal Christmas film that came out during Christmas. And like, to me, I I don't say this sarcastically. I always sound sarcastic for some reason. I just like really, really want to direct a Christmas movie. So usually in those scenarios, you're working under pretty tight conditions, right? It's like really run and gun. And you're usually being hired out to come in and direct rather than developing it as a personal project. Am I, am I on the right track with all these things that I'm saying? Well, I brought the project. It was my friend Melissa Bustamante's script and I brought the project to Mar Vista. So <gasps> wait, tell us how that happens. I want to know everything so I can just do it. Well, my friend Kristen Fairweather had introduced me to Mar Vista and I met with the executives and they were lovely and they said, hey, we want to work with you. So they had a few projects they pitched me and then I pitched them a few projects and they, they responded to my friend's project. They read that one and then two weeks later, they're like, great, we want to do this one. And they gave us notes on it. We did a rewrite on it and then they said, we're going to start shooting it in a month and a half. Which is like counter to the stories I usually hear, which is like they, I guess maybe not the company you worked with, but kind of like the Hallmark lifetime assembly line, or even like you look back at the asylum assembly line, it just seems like they piece together people at a low budget. But this is a very different situation. It sounds like you had a lot more resources and you got to make a somewhat personal film. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know everyone else's situation, but you know, the executive I worked with, she she gave wonderful notes and I think she really helped shape it. And I was able to put like input in the script too, like personal stuff. And, and Melissa and I, the writer, we worked very well together. So I, I, I'm very happy. It was a ratings winner for Lifetime. So I was very happy. It was like number one. Making a Christmas movie that I, that's not a cookie cutter film. I was very happy about that. And I like that this was a movie about redemption and hope and love. And it was a, other daughter's story. I'm proud of it. So with your first feature, was it a Christmas movie or no? No, I didn't think I was going to do a Christmas movie. I love Christmas movies, but I was like, oh, maybe, you know, but it was, yeah. So it was a totally different genre, but, but uh, that was a great experience too. What I'm really curious about is like, how did the funding come together to the, for that movie? Did you just do it on your own? Did you self-fund? Like, how did you make it happen? Yeah, I was self-funded and I got some, you know, funds from family, friends, and I just raised the money and used my own money. And then what was like the result of that film? Like, did it like get into some big film festivals? Like, how did you leverage it into like the meeting with Mar Vista? The meeting with Mar Vista was totally separate. It was my friend Kristen introduced me to them. I don't think that had any, but I met her through the Ryan Murphy program. And because I did that feature, Ryan Murphy was going to do like one on uh, Hurricane Katrina. And because my film was like kind of loosely based on like, it's a thriller and it's about uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. They said, oh, you'd be perfect to shadow on that series. Um, but that never came about. So I was on 911 and I met Kristen Fairweather through that program and we became like instant friends and she she introduced me to Mardista and that's how it all happened and I met Melissa through a Disney workshop 
and we became instant friends and she said she wanted she had a script and I said oh I'll pitch it for you I'm having a meeting at Mar Vista next week she's like you'll do that for me I'm like sure I don't care I'll pitch it so I did did you pitch other ideas to them first that were like your own ideas and then like after you went down like three or four ideas you like got to your friend's idea or like how did that happen Oh, no, I went in there only with uh, three or four ideas. And I didn't leave hers to the end. I think it was in the middle or somewhere. I just pitched them all. Like I just did all the log lines for all of them. And then whatever one they responded to, then I elaborated on it. Can we go back even further, though? So like I just jumped the gun and wanted to talk about Christmas movies. But like, let's go even back. Like, why did you get into film? Why do you want to be a storyteller? Um, I think I grew up just loving films and not knowing that that could actually be a career because I was actually biochemistry at UCLA and I wanted to be a doctor. So I never knew that that could be a career path because I was going to be a doctor. And then I audited a class and I decided I just didn't want to work in the hospital anymore because I was working for a pediatric neurosurgeon and it was just a lot going on in my life at the time. So um, I audited a class. I'm like, oh, this can, you can actually do this for a living. I love movies. I watched them all the time. I love television. And I was like, oh, you could do this like for a job. And so UCLA is very difficult to get into. They only accept 15 people within and 15 transfers. And so I said, well, if I get into film school, it's a sign and I won't go to medical school. So um, I got into film school and then I just started learning everything about how to make films and cinematography, editing and um, television production. And I just loved it so much. And, and I didn't know like how to get in because I thought it was kind of like, in order for me to be a doctor, I know what steps I need, need to take to become a doctor. I thought it was the same thing. You kind of like work your way up, you know, you do PA and you work your way up, you just become a dark director. I'm like, and you find out that is not how it goes. <laughs> so, but I did PA for a very long time. And then I was an assistant and then I did development and then I became a producer. And then um, I, I was worked- like, my whip to producer but like what's the directing thing and I was like oh you have to have like a short you have to so I thought having a short so I I got into the AFI directing workshop for women and I did my short thank you for washing and then that won um, a lot of festivals and it won the NBC festival and I got a pilot deal from that and then I was introduced to television and I was like oh I love television how do I get on this and they're like well you know you're just the writer you're you won't be able to direct the episodes you know so they they claim you know everything just always keeps changing right and they're like, oh, you have to direct a feature to be considered to direct episodes. I said, really? I was like, okay, well, I'll go shoot a feature then. So then I went and shot a feature. And then like, oh, you got to be in programs. Like, oh, you got to be in programs? Okay, I'll apply to programs. I answer Ryan Murphy program. They're like, well, then now you have to get an episode. I'm like, all right, now this just, you guys are just like changing the rules on me now. Like you're just making stuff up now. And then I got an opportunity to pitch to Mar Vista. So, and then I got the feature. So I was like, it seems easier to get a feature than get an episode of television. It is easier to make a feature than get an episode of television. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, crazy? So I was like, well, yeah. So I've got my feature and I'm like, wait a minute. I shot this feature in 14 days and you're telling me I can't shoot an episode. You know, I was like, I could do that easily, you know, but it's just trying to get into this club or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's, I think it's ever you know changing. So just trying to figure that out. I have a really like detailed question. So I see that you, you know, you were an assistant, you know, you, you worked on the Chronicles of Riddick and then on the same movie, you are got a producer's credit on the director's cut. Like, how, how does that work? How do you go from like assisting on the movie to getting a producer credit on the same movie? 
oh, because I did a lot of work on that movie. <laughs> That's why. The director's cut, it, it involved a lot of like extra visual effects and a lot of extra post work. And so that's that's how I got that credit because I did a lot of the work putting that together. And then from there, is that like kind of your entryway into producing? Is like from there you can just, that's like your first producing job and then like you kind of leverage that to more producing jobs? Yeah, I learned how to um, line produce in college. So I, I, I had that skill already. So. I was able to go on projects and I can, I can do line producing. And that was my one way in. I think that that helped. And, and I was also a script reader, so I can do development. And I was good at that as well. The way you described your background was like, we kind of say the slide, it's like a straight line. You, you, even though you said that they kept on changing the rules, like you are describing a straight line of getting into programs, getting into fellowships, DWW, all these things. Were there setbacks? Like it's, it sounds like you applied, you got in. And that's, I mean, like you're wonderful. You know, no, it's just, I, I had been applying to several programs. I was in the NBC fellowship when it was like at the beginning at like before, like what it's female forward. I was like all the way in the beginning. I was in that, I was a finalist for that, but then nothing ever came of it afterwards, you know? So I was like, okay, do another program. And then it's like, oh, you have to do another program. So I thought doing a short film because, you know, a lot of people, especially men, they, they've done short films and gone on to do like huge things and they didn't have to try to figure out how to do a first feature and all that stuff. And it didn't translate for me. And I was like, okay, well, let me just figure out if that doesn't work, let me do something else. And you just keep on trying, you keep on applying. So after my short, it did win festivals and got me an introduction to the television world. It, it still didn't translate. It didn't get me that episode. It didn't get me an opportunity there. And so I was like, okay, well then I'll just keep on moving forward. What, what do you do? I'm not going to just sit there. I have to like figure out another way, pivot, right? Well, but also like most people get rejected from those programs. So it's like, it's like constant validation for you that you have the talent and the chutzpah to be in this industry. Like you're getting a lot of yeses along the pathway that you may be seen as no. I saw a lot of no's. No, <laughs> I don't think it has anything. It's like, I don't know. I was rejected every year from Warner Brothers, every year. I, I made it to HBO to the semi-finalist, but it's just like, you never know what that, what they're looking for. I don't take it personally anymore. It's like, they maybe they didn't respond to it or they're looking for something. I don't know what they're looking for. It can always be, and it's luck. I think it's just luck of the draw and timing. I don't, I'm not sure if it has so much to do with talent. Uh, no, with you, I think it's talent, but that's very nice and diplomatic of you to say. <laughs> well, the, the thing I, I see in this, it's like, well, well, first off, like there's this whole big misconception that like you make a short film and then you get a feature. And like, I thought that in the beginning too. And I, I think a lot of people think that, and that's one of the things that I think the show is help, hoping to break is that people don't have that expectation because <laughs> that is like very few and far between. Like it takes like a lot of shorts and a lot of energy and, you know, resources to get to the next step. But the other thing I wanted to say was that like a lot of people do one thing, right? Like a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to make short films and I'm going to figure out how to make a feature. But like you made short films, try to figure out how to make a feature while also applying to every program, while also producing movies and assisting, while also doing all these other things. And I think that's the key is like, you didn't do just one thing. You did like 10 things. 
And well, you have to keep your hustle on, right? I was like, I can't like, <laughs> you have to tread water. You have to like, you know, you'll sink, right? Well, we see that a lot with our guests. Like the ones who do everything are usually the ones who end up becoming successful, right? You know, I can't remember the woman's name right now, but she's like a TV writer. And like, she like did every program, like everything, applied to everything. And eventually she got into some and then, you know, bam, she's like in writer's rooms. It's crazy. It's just, but I think that's the key is like the hustle, you know, and really going after not just one thing, but like a lot of different things. But, but back to the question with uh, your first feature, because you said that the Mar Vista deal didn't come from that feature, but like what, what was your, ex- like your experience after the feature was done and after it was released? Well, okay, so the feature really came about, I, I had sold a pilot to NBC and then my agent was like, okay, write another pilot. So I was writing all these pilots and then he's like, okay, well, we won't send it out until next year. I was like, what am I waiting for? I'm, I was tired of like waiting for permission. I was like, I know how to make a movie. Now, yes, this was be a TV show. My, my little nth ward was supposed to be like X-Files meets Fringe. I was like, well, let me figure out how to make it a movie now. So, you know, yes, I had to try to figure and, and try to make the story work as best I could. And I was like, I know how to raise money. I know how to make a movie. I can just make something instead of me waiting. Cause it seemed like it was just a, it was very challenging to try to break into the TV world as a, you know, a new writer. Cause that's a totally different path as well. Right? Like, oh, how, if I sell this pilot then you have to get the pilot then they have to green light that pilot if they shoot it, then it has to get picked up to series. Like it just seems like a very long path. And I was like, well, I know how to make a movie and I can try to figure out how to release it myself or try to get distribution. Like that path is, I think, easier for me. So I figured <laughs> I can make a movie and then just, I could put it out there. I don't need to wait for someone to make the pilot and to hopefully, you know, it goes on air. Like I don't need that. I can do a different path. I can still make my work. And what was the reception? Did you get distribution? Did you self-distribute? Did you do the festival game? I had to apply to some festivals, but I, I didn't want to do the festival game because I don't think it, it, it's not a festival movie. It's, um, it's just like a, a drama thriller. It, it's not a festival. So I didn't want to like spend that energy because I had done the festivals with a couple of my other shorts and it's a lot of time spent and I'm not sure what I really got out of it in return. Um, and it's a lot of money you're spending. So I'm like, the idea is like, if I'm trying to get work, I just need to like put it out there and then move on to the next thing. I don't want to spend two years like trying to like do all that stuff. That's not effective for me. It's a waste of my time. I want to just go into the next thing so I can just keep on creating. So yeah, I just self-distributed on Amazon and yeah. Are you comfortable talking about like the kind of return you got from the self-distribution on Amazon? Um, it has not made its money back yet. That's the story of most filmmakers. So <laughs> you're in good company. But but it sounds like that was something that you can point people to. Like when you get opportunities, you'd be like, look, I made this feature. And then it's like, it's sort of validation for people to give you opportunities. I think it's, it's you know, yes, it hasn't made its money back. But I think making your first feature, especially your, I think that's almost the price of admission. Like you... I thought the short film was going to be my entry, but no, then they want to feature. So then if you have to do that, then you have to do that. Yes. It's not as easy as being a writer that I could just go on my laptop and crank out a script. Like it costs a lot of money to make a film. Even if you make a super low budget independent film, it still takes thousands of dollars. 
I appreciate the first film. I appreciate what I learned from it. I appreciate what I got from it. Yes, it was not easy, but I'm grateful for going through that entire process, especially doing it, you know, on my own. Like my sister and I helped, my sister helped me do all this. Like we're driving the grip truck and doing all that stuff. So it's memories. Like we laugh about it now. And she's like, you, you should be so happy. You're my sister. Cause I will never do this for anyone else. <laughs> you only get one after a while she's like I was like oh let's do it again she goes are you crazy do you remember what the pain we went through I'm like oh I, you know I guess I, I haven't had a child yet but maybe childbirth you like you kind of forget about the pain you went through but I was like I want to do it again let's do it again was directing what you thought it would be like you were said you went through um a certain trajectory and then you looked over at directing and you're like oh how do you do that how do you get on that pathway is that like are you finding bliss in directing oh I love it I love directing being on set when I was producing films and stuff like that like I was like I want to be doing that like you know I've been on like huge budget films for you know 80 days of shooting like I know what the director does and he allowed me and which was so great about he allowed me to make a whole lot of decisions like I oh just go cast that or just go go shoot those and like he gave me a lot of input and responsibility and so I knew I wanted to do that. I just didn't know how to get there. <laughs> so. so do you have like a day job now? Like, because you, you made, you know, the Christmas movie in 2019. So are you getting writing gigs like after the, the Christmas movie came out? I'm like pitching to places and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm always constantly working and figuring out new ways to like stay creative. But obviously in COVID, you can't do anything of all 2020. So that was a bust. <laughs> obviously it wasn't working. But you could still write. Yeah, exactly. And I found joy in that. I want to go back to the Christmas movie. Thinking about the 14-day shoot, thinking about the fact that you had name cast, that you had probably a lot of locations, a lot of variables. Um, can you talk a little bit about casting, getting Ashanti involved, um, and working with her? Oh, yeah. It was great. I think the script went to her manager. They presented it to her and she she loved it. And then Hannah Marvista was like, Camille, you know, she's interested. Let's do it. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So um, we were so excited to have her aboard. And then we were looking at people and I love Stan Shaw because I saw him and I knew him from like Fried Green Tomatoes, Snake Eyes and Harlem Nights. So I was um, I was very excited to have him and I thought they would just be perfect together. And then um, the rest of the cast, you hire locally. So we filled out the cast that way. Yeah. But it was great working with Ashanti. And we pre-recorded all the music. And my sister and I, we wrote the last song. And Ashanti also contributed. So it was lovely. You write music too? (laughs) What? And then where did you guys, where did you guys shoot the movie? In Brighton, Michigan. It was not, it was spring. So it wasn't snowy. So that's fake snow. I keep hearing stories like that, that it's like they shoot these movies in the summer and the spring and like everything has to be created as if it's a winter atmosphere. Winter, yeah. There was one night that it was freezing cold and the actress had a, they didn't have to pretend it was cold because it was really cold. But yeah, it was cold. The rest of the days, yeah, it was like quite warm. And just going back to the casting for a second, because it sounds like the production company you worked with had a a large part in deciding who they wanted to go out to? Or did you, as the director, just create a list and have, was she at the top of it? Like, how did you negotiate 
oversight of casting with with the company oh yeah they 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 asked me like my cast wish list so i gave them my cast wish list and i gave them several names and um then they then we had a lovely casting director thomas sullivan he's awesome so he was instrumental in like helping find like great talent as well he's great so hire him <laughs> <laughs> so going from the first film to the second film did your directorial style change at all or like you know did, did you do anything different like as working with actors and everything on the second film versus the first film no i i think i'm the same always i don't i don't think i change anything you learn more tools i think how to like communicate with the actors but i think it's it's almost yeah the same like i, I was watching on set how how the actors responded to the director I worked with, you know, Judy Dench is in a movie, Vin Diesel. Like I saw like the different tools and how he communicated and how they like being spoken to. So, you know, you just gather all those and you put them in your, you know, tool belt. So, so later on you, you have those things to refer back to. It just, it sounds like being on set with like those bigger name stars was really helpful because then you were able to like sort of see how that communication happens. Cause I mean, for me personally, like the idea of working with like a bigger actor is a little, I wouldn't say nerve wracking, but I definitely would feel a little anxious. Like if I was to work with somebody who's a bigger star than the, you know, actors I know personally who worked in, who are in my first movie. So I don't know. It seems like a really good position to put yourself in, right? To like be around that kind of work so you can kind of see how it's done. Yeah. Being around other, you know, actors and veteran actors I felt like at home and comfortable. I think I was a little, normally like when we do our movies and I'm a producer on it, like you get to know the cast a little bit beforehand. I had like a couple of conversations with the actors like on the phone only before they flew out. You know, I had like a couple of hours on the phone with them, but um, normally, you know, you would have dinner with them and you know, you can have more of a relationship, but. No, when they came on set, I wasn't scared or nervous. Or, no, no, I wasn't. They, they were wonderful to work with, though. They didn't act like divas and they weren't crazy and they didn't feel like, oh, this is like, you know, you're, you're a newer director. Like they respected me and I respected them. It was a good working relationship. Yeah. I'm just so struck by how strategic you are and I'm just very impressed by you. And I'm just thinking about how all of us were stuck in 2020, you know, obviously and still are stuck inside. Here's my bedroom. Look at my bedroom. So. Had 2020 gone another way, obviously you wouldn't be talking to us. You would have, you'd be very busy. What would you be doing? Do you think? Oh, well, I was up for a Disney show. So I would have been doing that probably. <laughs> <laughs> but COVID hit, you know, I laugh about it now, but like, oh my God, it's devastating. My, my life would have been different, but uh, you know, whatever. What do you do about it? COVID has been a blessing in disguise. You know why? I was able to finish my master's. I finished two scripts. You know, it was great, actually. Wait, you got a master's degree? Go on. (laughs) They're like, shut down is what? I'm like, oh, great. I'll enroll in April and finish my classes. And I did. I went from April to November. In what? In film studies. My My diploma just came in the mail a couple of weeks ago. So I was like, let me just make the best of this. I said, I'm not going to stress myself out. If 2020 is that, I'm like, okay, what, do, what can I do in the meantime? I can finish my master's and I can write. So I finished two scripts and I finished my master's. Wow. 
Now, while most people are like watching TV and, you know, trying to work out from home, you're, you know, I did that too. completing masters and, you know, writing two features. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, with your trajectory, like you've got all this experience, like producing, you know, writing, paid hire to direct a feature. Like, what is like the thing that you want to do next that you haven't done yet? Like, what's the kind of movie you want to make? Or like, what next like mountain do you want to climb um, as an artist? I want to be in the family movie space. So I want to be basically Camille Brown, but like Chris Columbus. I want to make kid movies. I have a kid's adventure. I want to do those big kid movies. My best friend wants to do the exact same thing, except for maybe tween content, just slightly older. But it's always really refreshing to hear someone who wants to do that because I feel like everyone else wants to be George Lucas. So it's just really nice to hear someone. Yeah, who I just want to do family stories and wonderful. Yes, done. I just want to tell family stories that we we all can watch together and. I want to be able to have my, my little nephews, you know, watch my movies and want to watch it on repeat, you know, or, or, and they love it and they see their, their little, you know, they see, you know, little characters that kind of like are similar to them or something. So that's what I want. Wow. And then after two features and all the other work that you've done, like, do you have an agent and a manager or are you still just doing on your own? Like, what's the status there? Um, just doing on my own. I have a lawyer, a great lawyer, but yeah, just meeting through friends and other contacts. I had representation, but you know, unfortunately she passed away. So, um, sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was really sad, but, um, yeah, but you know, just keep on going. And, and again, I, I, I try not to stress myself out and saying I have to do X, Y, and Z by this time. It's like when, if it comes, it comes, you know, but I, in the meantime, I can still be doing other stuff that makes me happy. And I love writing and creating. Did representation secure the opportunity for you to sell things earlier on, or was that all through personal relationships too? All through personal yeah, relationships. That's what we hear over and over again is like. Actually the reps had nothing to do with any of the things I sold. Is that crazy? Yeah, God, absolutely nothing. <laughs> You're the second person in a row that we've talked to who had res representation and then now doesn't have representation and doesn't really want representation, you know, unless it's like the perfect person. Yeah, until I want someone who's going to want me and they see where I want to go and like want to work with my vision. And so I don't want someone that I'm like begging that relationship's not going to work out. You have to get me too. I'm a little kooky. So you have to like get me. <laughs> get to the point where I want to be in life, you know? That's awesome. It's like, I said this before, it's just like, you know, Liz and I both have never had representation and it's just like, we are like, it sounds so exciting, you know, to like have that opportunity to even like meet with a manager or an agent. And it's like completely like changing the, the way I'm thinking about it, talking to people who are like, nah, they don't do anything. Like you're better off doing it on your own. And they can get you meetings and everything, but I, you know, what's interesting. I think when, when an agent sets a meeting up, with you, you're like, okay, they call. It's kind of like a cold. They're like, okay, have this general with so-and-so. But then when you have a friend call that same contact and they say different things about you, they see you differently when you come in there sometimes. I feel like it's more personable for some reason. I think just filmmakers are so used to, well, indie filmmakers are so used to not being chosen for things. And I think that the idea of representation just feels like another way you could be chosen 
And I think that's why most of us who haven't had representation are just like trying to chase that carrot, <laughs> like, choose me, choose me. I want to be included. And uh, very often we're not looking at whether it actually benefits us. We just want to be a part of this club. So yeah, like I'm trying to reprogram my mind. I always think like, how can I get to X studio? Who do I know through my personal relationships who can do a personal introduction? So I, I think that, and then I have a group of friends and we all help each other. Like, who do you know here? Who do you know there? Who do you know? Kristen is the one who introduced me to Mar Vista. We all can help each other like that. We can all find work. And, you know, agents are gatekeepers. That's another level of gatekeeping, right? So it's like, do I want to again, ask for permission or can I figure it out on my own? Wow. I love that. Amazing advice. Well, Liz, any last final questions or should we get to our final five? Final five. All right. So these are kind of like the first questions, but like a little bit more personal. So I'll go first. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? It's called Love is Colorblind. <laughs> it was like a, a red character and a, a blue character and they come together and turn purple. <laughs> we need that film today politically. <laughs> What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? From an agent. He told me, never do something that you have to make an excuse for. Never make something you're like, oh, well, I did it because of this reason. Don't do it. He's like, don't sacrifice anything. Just don't do something that you have to make an excuse for. Is that in reference to you as a brand? Like a project that may devalue you? Do you think that's or what? Or just anything. Or you didn't like it or yeah, not devalue. Just like if it's not your thing or if you don't want to do it or if you just don't like it and you just did it because... He said, don't do it for that reason. Like, I don't want to do something for desperation for money. I don't want to do something. I want to do because I, I want to do it. So I'm passionate about it. I love it, you know. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I want to make four quadrant movies. <laughs> yes, that's my goal. Yes. <laughs> With family, you can do that. Yes. <laughs> if you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice you would give yourself? Make a feature film immediately immediately you learn you will learn everything whether it's good or bad whether you fail or succeed you've gone through that process and I think just going through the process and understanding how everything works is the best education ever especially when you have to like figure it out the nuts and bolts on your own and it's not like oh you just walk on set like you you have to know what every department does like it's a quick lesson on how you make a film. So I, I think I would have done that immediately. I wouldn't have waited. But I learned a lot like being on other sets and stuff like that. But I think I would have, it would have been invaluable for me just to immediately make a feature. I wish I would have heard that when I was like making my fourth short film. It's like, yes, right? <laughs> if you, like, stop the short films, just make a feature. <laughs> I think I like thought I needed more practice or I was like, oh, I'm not ready or whatever. But the amount of money I spent on my shorts, it's like I could have funded half my feature probably <laughs> if I hadn't have done all that. But you live and you learn, right? Yes, you live and you learn. And lastly, is Mickey movies hard? It can be. But if you're a glutton for punishment, you'll love it and it's not going to be hard. <laughs> Where can people find you on the interwebs? I'm not very good at social media, but you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at, at the Camille Brown. Wow. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. Thanks so much uh, for coming on, Camille. Thank you for having me. 
I was really impressed by Camille. She was one of those uh, people who works extremely hard and hustles like crazy and then doesn't really understand that. (laughs) She just thinks that she's just doing what everyone else should be doing or does. And she doesn't realize that she's working probably 10 times harder than the average person. She's very humble, right? Is, yes. that, is that a humility or is it like a disconnect? I, I, think, I think humility. And I also think maybe just like, no, this is what I have to do. And I've enjoyed every minute of what, I, what I've done. And this is what we, we all do, right? You know, like that kind of attitude. She started as a PA. She worked her way up. Uh, she became, became a producer. Then she like was trying to like jump to directing and then she didn't have the easiest way in. So then she was like, oh, I'm just going to make my own feature. And she just went and made a <laughs> As feature. As if it's so easy. I'm just going to wake up and make a feature today. So that was really fascinating. And then, yeah, the other thing, she was just some, yet another person we've talked to in the last few weeks who've said, uh, don't feel feel like a manager or a rep would be you know necessarily integral in my success. I remember clearly she said that she didn't get the movie because of representation, which I think is... The key takeaway for me. She just went into a meeting and pitched like four to six ideas. And they were like, that sounds good. And oh my gosh, I talked with her. I think we're having some technical issues or something. And so I started just like monologuing at her, which is, you know, this charming quality I have. And I remember telling her how excited I was that she directed a Christmas movie, because that is one of my career goals. Well done, Camille. Bucket list crossed off Christmas movie. The other thing I remember about Camille was that she said that her goal was to direct four quadrant movies, which I thought was really fascinating because most people that we talk to like are trying to go towards like a niche audience or make a certain type of film. And she's like, well, the certain type of film I want to make is this film that fits within those four quadrants. And family films. Totally. And I mean, I think that's a totally great goal and an awesome ambition. I just I don't think I've ever talked to anyone on the show who's who had that goal. Maybe a couple people who wanted to do family movies, but they never said it like that. They never said like four quadrant, you know, and she's going to do it like just like you're saying, she's got gumption. She's just like brilliant and hardworking. And it's cool that to just watch it happen. It's cool. <laughs> I just think she she frames it as like in the funniest way though. She's always like, well, I wanted to do this. So I did this. And I think there may be a few beats that we're missing, but also her confidence is inspiring and infectious. So whatever, whatever we got out of that conversation was um, a net positive. Yeah, absolutely. It also proves that like the, the start to a directing career can be directing a feature, you know, and that's like the thing that leads to the next feature, even though, She didn't sell her feature for a ton of money, didn't get big distribution. She just self-distributed and did that thing. But apparently it it is a thing that like when she is in that meeting, you know, at uh, Mar Vista or wherever it was, it's like helps her get the yes because people say, oh, well, you've made a feature. You have that experience. Anyways, fantastic. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we did. And I think it's time to get to some uh, Gene Hackman and John Travolta. If you listen to the show, you know what that means. (laughs) So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. This week we have a short film from filmmaker in front of the show and old editor Cameron Caves. Cameron has been listening since the early days of the podcast and it's really great to have him on the show to talk about his latest film, Hypothermia. Take it away, Cameron. Hey there guys, my name is Cameron Caves. I am a filmmaker from Sacramento, California. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I actually edited a few episodes, I think around five or six, back around episode 
105, 110, somewhere around there. I decided to make this a short because for me, film is a lot easier than writing, for example, a novella or a short story or something like that. I've always been interested in film as a visual medium and uh, when I was younger I would draw like a lot. I wanted to make a horror film that was set in a desert environment because although the desert is seems like a natural setting for a horror movie, there's extreme heat during the day and extreme cold at night and there are rattlesnakes and tarantulas and scorpions and mountain lions and stuff. There's everything in the desert trying to get you but I couldn't think of that many horror films that had a desert setting so I decided to make one. It was completely self-funded so didn't have any help from other people or anything like that. I paid for everything. I didn't think uh, that anything would happen with my career. I think if you are a filmmaker and you're going into a project thinking that you're going to end up disappointed because you can only control the film and you can't even really control that. But that's the thing you have the most control over. You can't control the reaction to the film. You can't control whether or not it gets accepted into film festivals or if it's a if it's on a bigger scale, you can't control what the box office is going to be. So I think it's just an illusion, you know, to, to believe that it's going to lead to something like a bigger budget or something for your next project. You can't do that. You, you'll just end up disappointed constantly. You, you have to just make the film because you want to make the film. The only thing that happened uh, because of this film was that it got accepted into a film festival. So that's pretty cool. I can put that on my, on my resume. I think it serves a couple purposes. Number one, uh, my life goal is to make a film in every state of the U.S. So I have already made some in California and then this one, which was filmed in Nevada. So I'm now part of the way through that life goal. So that's, that's great. The other thing is that I hopefully have shown people that you can film something seven hours away from where you live with just two actors and just two crew members and an environment where you don't have a lot of control. I feel like for other film students and other filmmakers, there's a need to want to have control over everything. So it tends to be shot in their house or shot in a studio or something, something where they have a lot of control. And hopefully this will show people that you don't need to have control over everything as long as you can make a story that is efficient and simple and tells a good story. You, you don't need all that, all that other stuff. There's a couple things that I would say I might do differently for this film. The main one is that the special effect of the mouth in the film was really poorly done because basically I wanted it to be professional and good looking and scary. And I had been talking with somebody. This film was in post for literally 13 months, I think. It was literally over a year of this person getting back to me slower and slower, longer and longer times between messages until eventually they just stopped responding to me. And I was kind of at that point, you know, feeling like I had wasted this year of having a otherwise completely finished film. And I was like, I'm, I'm just going to make it. I'm just going to make it myself. If I had the opportunity, I'd like to have a professionally done, well-made prop that I could use for that one shot. But in terms of the story, Instead of them seeing the clothes on the side of the road at the beginning of the film, I would prefer if it was another actor there. And that was the original plan, was to have another actor that they just kind of pass that person. And couldn't, couldn't get that. So 
that would be the two the two things a professional looking mouth prop and another person so thanks for watching my film uh, hopefully you liked something about it <laughs> i don't think i'm ever going to make a film where everybody likes everything or even some people like everything but hopefully there's some stuff that you liked about it and if not then maybe in the future there could be a film that is more amenable to what you want out of the film thanks everyone so liz what did you think of hyperthermia um thank you cameron for your service in editing this podcast and for all your contributions to this show let's start with that um <laughs> i will also say i quite enjoyed some of the visual effects in the film I thought those were cool. And I'm always a fan of nudity, though I thought this was not the best usage of nudity because it wasn't completely necessary. Okay. Um, I didn't like it. I didn't like it, Karen. I'm so sorry. I didn't think it was a strong film. I have some thoughts. We could go into it. I'll try to be helpful and constructive. Um, I thought sound recording quality was pretty inconsistent. I thought the performances, while good efforts were pretty weak camera i think was very tough i thought there were some logic problems with the story why close the window of a car when it's really really hot outside why aren't the windows open why is their makeup immaculate why aren't they their clothes more sweaty i really liked the lantern shot of the woman holding the lantern mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i don't know what happens after she opens her mouth because it cuts to a very weird shot of a teeth i have questions go okay all right salvage this all right well i'm gonna start with my positives just to just start right there please do i thought the desert setting was nice i thought there were some nice shots of the desert especially the wides of the car driving by i thought were good liz disagrees i don't think that it I think the performances, okay, they're not like the best thing in the world or anything, but like I think with some better editing, it could have been salvaged, right? Like I think there's a good movie within the footage if uh, editing had been a little tighter. Like this movie is 10 something. It could have been five something. 100% agree. It could have been a lot stronger if they cut out a lot more. If you'd focused on the parts of the performances that worked, which were a lot of them, um, because the one woman is definitely a little bit more emotive, um, you know, the one who becomes the monster, um versus uh the one who's the victim she's a little less emotive but like that's not necessarily a problem you just have to use the best pieces of their performance in order for the story to work well and i thought there was a lot of shots where you're supposed to see them sweat but you didn't really see them sweat very well um and you're supposed to like focus on their like them getting hotter and hotter and I think I was just confused because I thought it was hypothermia and not hyperthermia. So I was wondering, like, are they hot or are they cold? And then I was like, <laughs> okay, clearly they're hot because um, it's the desert. But then you're right. Like, why were the wind? I think the windows up why made were the me think up? that maybe it was a cold desert. And then when they were commenting about someone being naked in the in the desert, I was like, Wh why? What? And then I had a suggestion. So I had to watch it back because I missed it. But there's a part where she starts talking about. Um, someone being in the desert naked and like, oh, there's someone out there in the desert. And I was like, wait, what did we did I miss something? Like, did we see somebody in the desert naked who wasn't there? And then we didn't. And we just saw like a very, very fast shot of clothes on the ground that didn't really even look like clothes that could have been rags or something. It just went so fast. And then I watched Cameron's, um, you know, what he said. And he was talking about how he originally wanted it to be a person naked, but he didn't have a third actor. 
Um, and so he just let the dialogue in there. And I was like, well, that doesn't really solve your problem, you know, because if we don't see it and someone's referencing it, it just doesn't really work. So my suggestion was like, if he had just taken a shot of the clothes on the ground, like with a camera out the passenger window and had just like driven by slowly and then like panned across the, the, um, the clothes, it could have been a really nice moment because we would be like looking at it, like wondering, what is that? What is that? As we get closer to see what it is, pass by and then like pan back in rear view to still see the clothes there it could have really sold that they were clothes and we would at least kind of had like an idea of like oh there's someone else is lost in the desert and that might be happening to our our, our characters here or since he asked his actress to get naked he could be that third actor and he could get naked mm-hmm. true true just a suggestion cameron put your <laughs> put your body where you're where your actors are i don't know i can't there's no expression for that yeah i like this idea of like something taking somebody and becoming a monster in the desert or there's some kind of thing and the way that she was like went out into the desert and kind of was like lost out there i thought that was interesting the nudity was it necessary probably not i mean did it play into the story no was there like any kind of mythology or creation around the monster not really was there any like like leading up to why there would be a monster or any kind of sense of why a monster would take on these characters or anything? No, not really. So I think those are all other problems that the movie had, despite the technical problems you already mentioned with the audio and then just like the length and everything. So he also talks about how he had somebody to create this monster, to create this creature at the end that would be like the, the shot of the woman eating her friend. And then they bailed from the project. And so then he just did it himself. And it's like, well, what you probably should have done is like, rather than trying to do something that you know you couldn't do, you could have rewritten it. So it's like she just becomes like a cannibal or becomes like enraged or something. And then or a pod person. She's like contagious and the pot, you know, it's like there's like a displacement identity situation. Yeah, or that, that she somehow eats her friend, but just without being a monster, just with being a person or like somehow becomes feral or something like there's lots of other solutions to have like the big reveal at the end that you didn't have to try to do something that like you know you probably knew that wasn't really going to deliver what you're going for i love what you're saying about recutting it because there were moments of bernice's performance where i was like there's something there to this actress like i'm just not getting the meat of it and i'm seeing too much of her and it's like getting lost in the longer take. So I, I agree with you. And I think there are some really cool shots. Like I'm really obsessed with that lantern shot. Anytime the camera's steady and it looks like it's an orchestrated shot, it's really beautiful. So yeah, if he cuts out five minutes of this and just does a highlights. Yeah, just get to the to the meat really like yeah. a lot faster and just cut out a lot of the extra stuff that doesn't really matter, you know? In the very beginning, there's like a really beautiful shot of the wide desert. And then there's another shot of the desert where it's like handheld walking through the desert or something. And it's like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, is that another monster's point of view? Is that the nude guy? I don't know what it was, but it, it just didn't work. And it was like, basically at the end of the movie, you have to guess what that was. Um, and it didn't really do anything to set the mood. So if you had taken that out, like, I think, like, it, it, basically, if you edited yourself more, I think the movie would have been so much more slick and just not even just slick, but just more polished and something that I probably want to watch again to like, you know, see if there's other subtle hints of like what's going to come, you know, to in the end of the movie in the beginning. 
But, you know, I mean, I think you gotta commend the guy for going out there and making a movie for no money. He doesn't live in the desert either. For some reason, he decided to make it in the desert and drive seven hours to get there. <laughs> oh my gosh, Cameron. Do you think he'll recut it? Do you think he'll listen to this and be like, I'm gonna recut it? I'm not sure. I think he seems like he's done with it, you know? Like, he's like, like, he knows. I think he probably knows a lot of what we're saying and like he feels like a lot of what the movie is lacking, you know, and especially with the ending. It all comes back to the same thing we talk about with these movies that look beautiful. It's like if you don't have a core theme and a core message and a core story that you're trying to like convey something to somebody in some way, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> like I think all movies should have that, like have some kind of central identifying theme or central core message that they are you know delivering to us like Rakafet's film had that and was really really well done and you know the one altar by um gosh what's his name oh Nate Ruger did the altar one the, Go- the Goatman one love that I mean I feel like those movies it's, they don't have a lot of dialogue in them Nate's doesn't it's like pretty pretty sparse and I think like it just goes to show you don't really need a lot of like exposition and a lot of story to like convey something and show something that has some sort of theme or message in it. 100% agree. I also want to double down on a comment I made last week that is coming up for me again which is you know I want to see the protagonist's face if if I can. I know that sounds a little lame and backwards but like because Cameron's shooting in a car and he's behind them or whoever his teammate is behind them, you only get that three quarter, right? You never really get to see the full on face until afterwards. And I, there's something to be said about inviting someone into enjoying a character by letting us really watch them. And when we get these kind of awkward three quarters, it closes the audience off from the emotional experience. So that's just something I've noticed, but I'm also obsessed with the face just like to see faces. So yes, great photography, patience, you know, willing to kill your babies in terms of dialogue. It will get you there to a much more satisfying experience for an audience member. I want to just ask you a question just based off of something you said, like, when do you think nudity is important? Like, what does the story need to have in order to justify nudity for you? And again, I'm very pro nudity. Like I, I enjoy nudity, but I, but I think there's a history of exploiting women's bodies just to add value rather than to mm-hmm. contribute to the story. So yes, her nudity really, you could have had her fully clothed and it wouldn't have major ramifications to the story. I would say that's an issue. So if there's no story dependent character attribute depended on it, then I don't think it's necessary. And it didn't strike me that this was an exploitational film where it was about showing women's bodies. So it was just felt like it came out of nowhere to me. Mm, interesting. Bravo to that actress who was like vulnerable and put herself out there. Like that is really scary to me. But I just think as storytellers, we want to make sure we're using those. What is that like the ace in the hole? We're using those like really compelling images that aren't, seen very often in American culture to a purpose that has some substance behind it. 
Yeah, I mean, I made a movie that has a nude sex scene in it, and um, the whole point well, that's of a sex scene. That's why they're nude. So you think sex scenes are are okay? Like, yeah, because you you're have naked a nude when sex you have sex. Yes, you're not naked okay. by default standing in the middle of the desert. Yeah, like the whole point behind that was to try to do something that felt raw and authentic, you know. And then I had the guy being nude too, so it was you know, man, man and woman nudity. Um, I was gonna do a penis shot, and I chickened out at the last second. <gasps> Oh, man. man, I did something similar. I asked an actor to do nudity. And then at the last minute, he asked to put on underwear. And I was like, of course, right? Of course. My actor was ready to do it. I just was like, nah, keep your underwear on. <laughs> oh, we should have switched actors. <laughs> it was it was funny. And I remember driving away from that shoot feeling like, like so great about the whole thing, like everything that we got, except that I didn't get the penis shot that I wanted. I was like, damn it. You chickened out, you big baby. I really support that that's like a goal for you, Ulrich, because it's also a goal for me. I think as a culture, we do not exploit the male body enough. We need, right. we have years to make up for lost time. So if I'm going to have female nudity, I have to have equal amounts of male nudity in any movie I make. That's sort of like something that I want to just do no matter what, you know, that it has to be equal. That it can't just be the ladies getting naked, you know, like in Carrie or you know, whatever, any other example from the 80s or 70s. <laughs> Though Carrie is about the developing female body as like a point of horror. So again, like I'm kind of okay with that, right? But Cameron, issue a response. Let us know. <laughs> yeah, what was your point of them being naked? Just to be cool? Or was there something more behind it? Anyways, thank you so much, Cameron, for sharing your film. I warned him that this was going to happen so he knew that this was coming. So did he know I would be so mean? I don't know if he knew that you would be so mean. I think he knew that I had some criticisms okay. because I kind of said that. But I was like, you know, just or if you're as long as you're open to that. He's like, yeah, sure. I was like, okay, all right, cool. Thank you, Cameron. <laughs> he can handle it. You know, if he's going to be a filmmaker, he can handle yeah. it. Um, all right, but Liz, do you have something for us this week? We have mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You got mail. I don't think we've read this one before. So I guess this is a new iTunes review, but it did come out in January. Friend of the show, Jeanette Bloom, wrote, Best podcast for indie filmmakers with at least three, if not four, exclamation points, but my eyesight is bad. So Jeanette says, I wish I found this podcast years ago. I've been making films for a long time and still so much of the process is a mystery to me. The best part about this show is the encouragement to just get out and make things and hearing so many filmmakers tell their unique stories, getting into the nuts and bolts of making their films is so inspiring. I honestly have had a better outlook on life and moving forward in my career thanks to this show. It made me realize you just have to keep making films and you are the only person who will be determined enough to see them through. I had a version of that realization when I made my second feature recently, first as director, out of sheer will and determination, but I felt so tired and worn down afterwards and thought I couldn't continue making films in this way. Something about hearing on this show that it's just that hard for everyone, every time, at all stages of their careers, has given me the fortitude to feel like I can continue to devote my life to this. There's not really such a thing as making it. And somehow really realizing that is freeing and only a little depressing. Ha ha. Uh, the co-hosts are so lovely and generous with their knowledge and curiosity. And I just want to say thank you, Liz and Ulrich. You guys are awesome. Having just discovered this show a couple of weeks ago, I have a ton of episodes to catch up on. Wow. Wow, Jeanette. 
Thank you so much. What a generous, amazing review. We really appreciate it. It's awesome that our show can like have that much of an impact on someone. So thank you. I love that. We also wanted to mention Madison and I of Travis and Madison as the these wonderful filmmakers that we've been talking about the past few weeks. Um, Madison and I were going to have like a chat about me potentially supporting them as a short film consultant. Mm. And um, we're in the middle of scheduling the session. And Travis emails me saying, you know, hey, we're in Texas. We're snowed in. We're having problems with power. We're going to have to move this next week. But by the way, we wrote an iTunes review and I think he did it in part because he didn't want to break the streak of being mentioned on the show every single week. So because the iTunes review has not been posted yet by Apple, I just wanted to mention them on the show so that they knew (laughs) that we would continue the tradition of bringing them up in every episode. Every episode. There you go, guys. We also have a few new YouTube comments, as always. One from our episode with the Nelms Brothers, friend of the show, Nick Bell, writes, This was the best, all capitals, episode by far. Burned all the other episodes. I learned so much listening to this. Thank you again, all our Liz, for finding and talking with these incredible filmmakers. Wow. I'm glad you liked it, uh, Nick. That's awesome. I mean, I've not experienced so much positive feedback for a single episode. So that's not surprising that Nick Bell wrote that. Yeah, Ian and Esham bringing in the views, man. And then Gary Kennedy, (laughs) love (laughs) of our lives. Uh, Gary Kennedy is back for more. Um, He shared a new comment on our episode with Kevin Lewis. Gary responds because he wrote a comment earlier about um, a counterfeit exorcist reference. And he says that that reference was in reference to the dad pal short. It was one of the random things that people were saying about their dad. Just hearing that painted the picture in my mind of a traveling shyster who goes town to town performing fake and very theoretical. (laughs) Gary, you just cracked me up. Um, Just hearing that painted the picture in my mind of a traveling shyster who goes town to town performing fake and very theatrical exorcisms on people until one day they encounter a person who's actually possessed and they have to figure out a way to battle it. It could be a good comedy horror, I think. And no, Ulrich, I will not stop commenting. This is my very achievable goal for the year. <laughs> um, thank you, Gary, because if you didn't keep commenting, wh- who, what would we have to share? It only helps us. So thank you for your comments. What will we talk about in this segment every week if it wasn't a Gary Kennedy comment? <laughs> oh. So if you want to be like Nick Bell, Travis and Madison, Gary Kennedy, uh, you can leave comments on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. You can also support the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash podcast. Please give what you can. Thank you very much for just hearing me say this out loud. If you want to send a question, comment, or suggestion like those people I just mentioned, you can email podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave a review on iTunes or any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. Finally, check us out on those places I mentioned, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Oh my gosh, I feel like I talked a lot this episode. (laughs) And thanks to Camille Brown for coming on the show and having another open and honest conversation with us. We really appreciate it. You can follow us on social media. I am Ulrich B on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where can you be found? Liz Manischel on Twitter, climbing, climbing faster and faster towards 2,000 followers, um, and Liz Manischel Film on Instagram. 
And also, finally, please go to our website, makingmoviesinsider.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode. I post the dang show every week on the website. And anyways, go there. Some We have like, I've gotten like one new subscriber a week to our newsletter on the website. So people must be going there. So I'm going to keep doing it. There's a lot of places for us to check us out, right? So I yeah. actually saw that YouTube subscribers has been growing, which is amazing because we had a little dead period for a little bit. I think we're like two from 200. You so know? close. So, so close. Let's just get to 200 people. Then we get to 300. Then we get to 400. And then one day, God willing, we'll get to 1,000. And it'll be great. Anyways, thanks also to editor Carly McKeating for doing the editing of this episode. And Cameron Caves has agreed to come back as our editor and do some more editing for us. So Cameron, if you don't hate us after our review of your movie, hopefully you'll be editing future episodes as well. Oh, wow. Now people know this is not scripted because it was not strategic at all for me to be so constructive. No, but it's good. Honesty is our best policy. And I'm sure Travis and Madison will love to hear the honest comments on someone else's film because they were like, be brutal, be honest. Don't hold back. So there you go. We didn't hold back. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you guys next week. That film, uh, the the Christmas story movie. Christmas winter story. Christmas winter story. Sorry. Oh, shit. A Christmas winter song. Fuck, I got it wrong. Oh, boom. Boom.